Today's scripture reading is found in Luke chapter 8, verses 43 to 48. As Jesus went along, the people were crowding him from every side. Among them was a woman who had suffered from severe bleeding for 12 years. She had spent all she had on doctors, but no one had been able to cure her. She came up in the crowd behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and her bleeding stopped at once. Jesus asked, Who touched me? Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, the people are all around you and crowding in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I knew it when the power went out of me. The woman saw that she'd been found out, so she came trembling and threw herself at Jesus' feet. There, in front of everybody, she told him why she had touched him and how she had been healed at once. Jesus said to her, My daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, now I'd like to introduce this morning's guest preacher. Today we welcome back the Reverend Shona Taruza. Last time Reverend Shona was here at Court Street United Methodist Church, I shared with you that she is currently serving as the Ministry of Outreach, Social Justice, and Diversity at Ann Arbor First United Methodist Church. Reverend Shona is uniquely qualified for that role. Reverend Shona was born in Scotland. She had a white Scottish mother and a black Zimbabwean father. And she grew up spending her time in both Scotland, in the United Kingdom, and in Zimbabwe. Sixteen years ago, she came to America, and in the time that she's been here, she's developed a love for the United States and a passion for racial justice. Reverend Shona also loves to use art to communicate the good news of God's love. And today, we are grateful that she's here once more to share the good news of that love with the people of the Court Street United Methodist Church. We are excited and pleased to welcome back to the pulpit at Court Street, the Reverend Shona Teruza. The woman approaches Jesus from behind. She has managed to get quite close to him, despite the pressing crowds. But she doesn't dare call his attention and make a direct appeal for healing. She really should not be out here. And so she prays that no one notices her. She cannot tap him on the shoulder or even position herself to have a face-to-face -face conversation with him. She is not worthy enough to face this man. Anything she touches will be defiled, and this would include him. She doesn't even want him to know that she is here. All she wants to do is to touch his garment, the hem. She didn't even touch a different part of his robe. She is too impure, unclean. The weight of shame and desperation forces her down to her knees. And then she reaches out and touches his robe. The hem. And then she believes to her core that her suffering is now over. This woman has what sounds like it could be menorrhagia, which nowadays can be treated. You know, for us women living in this era, it would be terribly inconvenient 
but no one would know unless we told them because it's no one's business but our own. And so why the fuss for this woman? It's easy to see this woman as just another one of the people seeking healing from Jesus because there were many. But for this woman, given the culture that she was born into, her condition effectively turned her, literally, into an untouchable, an outsider. To understand the system that placed, placed her on the margins as an outsider, we have to understand the religious and cultural beliefs and practices of her time. The Jewish people lived in adherence to Torah, Mosaic law, which were instructions to guide their covenantal relationship with God. There were different categories of laws, but it was the purity laws that directly affected this woman. More specifically, the purity laws outlined in Leviticus 15, verses 19 through to 31. And so I'm going to read my own paraphrase because Leviticus is kind of graphic and I do know that there may be children watching. And so here we go. When a woman has her time, it will last seven days. And anyone who touches her will be unclean until evening. Anything she lies on and anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed or anything she sits on will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water and they will be unclean until evening. Any marital relations will cause her husband to be unclean for seven days. Any bed he lies on will be unclean. A woman will be unclean for as long as she has the issue. When the issue has ceased, she must count off seven days, and after that she will be ceremonially clean. On the eighth day, she must take two doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest at the entrance of the tent to the meeting. The priest is to sacrifice one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. In this way, he will make atonement for her before the Lord for the uncleanness of her issue. You must keep the Israelites separate from the things that make them unclean, so that they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. The purpose of the law was to be faithful to and to honor God, and I respect that. But after reading all of that, I find myself putting myself in the woman's shoes and wondering about the ramifications of all of this on her life. You know, was she married? Because her husband would then have been also unclean for 12 years by associating with her, as well as any children that they might have had. 
Would he have been able to stick around for 12 years of this? In fact, anyone who came into her home, friends or relatives, would also be unclean. Did she have friends and relatives that were able to hang in there with her for 12 whole years? Where did she live? Because she couldn't live in the same house as other people. How did she live? You know, like get food or make a living. Because she probably couldn't go out in public to marketplaces or other communal gatherings due to her condition. What was her physical health like? if she'd been struggling like this for 12 years. Imagine the psychological toll of living like this. Imagine her spiritual weariness after having been excluded from the spiritual and religious life of the community for 12 years and also carrying that unclean identity I know that she desperately wanted to be an insider because she had spent all that she had on doctors. This was all beyond her control. She was powerless except through her encounter with Jesus. I find myself strongly empathizing with the woman. Black women here in the US find themselves in a similar marginal outsider situation due to the system in place in this country, which is also largely beyond our control. Black women are born into a system which due to our physical characteristics and gender makes us largely seen as less than or inferior. This woman had an intersectional identity because of her health condition. And so I talked more about intersectionality in my sermon for you on, the, on July the 18th. I called that sermon Sister Outsider Part 1. And this here is Sister Outsider, part two. And so I'll just revisit intersectionality briefly. So intersectionality is a framework developed by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw that explains how race, class, gender, disability, and other individual characteristics intersect with one another, creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. In 1962, civil rights activist Malcolm X observed that the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. 
Not much has changed since then. According to the US Census, on average, black women were paid 63% of what non-Hispanic white men were paid in 2019. The national earnings ratio for all women is 82%, but 63% for black women. The US Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that the number of black women employed as full-time minimum wage workers is far higher than that of any other racial group. Black women are four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related issues than any other racial group. One in four black women are uninsured. In 2019, the imprisonment rate for black women was almost twice that of white women, 83 compared to 48 per 100,000. White women held almost one-third, or 32.8%, of total management positions in the U.S. in 2020, whereas for black women, it was 4.1%. Now, I know that I run the risk of losing you all if I continue to roll with all the numbers and statistics, and so I'll just stop here. What I will say is that we all know that race is not biologically real. It is a social construct. And yet across the board, the situation for black women is poor. Why? This is the legacy of slavery, segregation, and the imposition of second-class citizenship on black women for as long as they have been in this country. How have we structured our society to enable this? These racial disparities are not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but something deeply embedded in legal systems and public policies. These are the manifestations of systemic racism. What I just described are some of the basic tenets of critical race theory. So critical race theory recognizes that it is the systemic nature of racism that bears primary responsibility for reproducing racial inequalities in this country. Professor Kimberly Crenshaw summarizes that critical race theory asks us to scrutinize how and why society looks the way it does. Another tenet of critical race theory is that of counter-storytelling, and that is telling the stories of those people whose experiences are not often told, like me here right now, speaking for two of the sister outsiders 
that Jesus encountered. And so one more tenet of critical race theory is the concept of interest convergence, which basically says that white people will support minority rights only when it is in their interest as well. And so I'm very grateful that I'm here speaking to a church community for whom loving one's neighbor is not conditional or transactional. And I believe that critical race theory is an essential framework to help us Christians to understand and truly work for justice by tackling the root of the problem. It can help us to be more loving and truly compassionate, to be Jesus. We have a lot of work to do. Now for some more positive statistics. In her book, Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body and Spirit, the author Mary Frances Winters cited a Pew Research survey that noted that 80% of black women reported that religion was very important to them. And 86% believe in God with absolute certainty. She describes how the church is a place of refuge for black women, a place where you are unconditionally accepted. You are uplifted and supported and leave Sunday service with the strength to survive another week. She added that it is the persistent work for justice that has brought us this far. It is why black women are able to thrive in spite of centuries of denigration. Speaking more personally now, Winters was speaking specifically about the black church. But all churches should be a place of refuge for people like me. If we truly want to live out the beloved community that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. dreamed of, then we need to create safe spaces first. Safe spaces are created when a church understands the nature of the oppression that we are facing and makes a firm commitment to dismantle it and to stand in solidarity with those who are oppressed by it. I am a black immigrant woman and I have touched the hem of Jesus' robe. My faith is why I am here preaching today. And I thank you all for being the type of church where this type of message can be received. 
I'm going to close now with the rest of the woman's story. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I noticed that the power had gone out from me. When the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Amen.